Welcome to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from the legendary hills of Brown, where the plum purple haze, the one nature herself drapes over the hills and hollers, inspires local characters, artists, and nature lovers. It's as though the hills themselves conspire to create a beauty and culture in the heart of Indiana. Sit for a spell and hear the music. Tall tales. True stories. And current goings on. Brought to you by folks who still know how to sit by a fire in winter. And swim buck naked in summer. Welcome to episode 94 of the Brown County Hour. This is Vera Grubbs. And Dave Seastrom, along with the rest of the crew. This month, we are celebrating the holidays by sharing a couple of stories from two of our favorite writers, Rachel Perry and Carrie Ray. We have a conversation about folk arts in creative aging with John Kay. Dave Simcox will share information about the Friends of Lake Monroe meeting sponsored by the League of Women Voters. Jim Eagleman has a few thoughts about fall work, and Dave Seastrom reflects on the responsibility of living with nature. This month, we don't have a musical guest, but we will share three songs from a few of our favorite contributors, Carrie Ray, Chris Dollar, and John and Jamie from The Hammer and the Hatchet. In our first segment, we'll weave together two stories and one original song. Rachel Perry tells her tall tale, Caveat Emptor, and Carrie Ray brings us her story, Born to Shine. And we'll hear the song she composed by the same name. The Song Prompt Anyone who has been at the hobby or vocation of songwriting for long is familiar with it. It comes in many forms, detailed and broad, literal and suggestive, loved by some, loathed by others. Seems there's no middle ground, sort of like American politics these days. In case you are uninitiated, a song prompt is a word, phrase, quote, or concept that's presented to a songwriter or group of songwriters to act as, at the very least, a springboard for a song, and at most, the main subject or lyric in a song. Me? I fall squarely in the loather camp. I mean, you know, I want to think of my songwriting process romantically. It's organic, spiritual, intuitive, natural. Anything but prompted, for heaven's sake. So if I'm going to subject myself to a prompt, I box myself in as much as possible to make it an exercise to improve my craft. Meaning, I try to make sure that what I am presented with find its way into a lyric of the song, verbatim. Cruel? Maybe. I found myself in such a predicament at the recent Southwest Regional Folk Alliance Conference in Austin, Texas. They do this fun little game where registrants grab a slip of paper with a song prompt when they register with the goal of writing a song and performing it at the farewell brunch on the final day. So, mm, three-ish days to write a song. Oh, that's another sweet little side dish that often comes with the prompt. A compressed time frame. Sometimes a few days like this, sometimes a few hours or less. 
It wasn't even required, so I have no idea of what phantom I was possessed when I reached my little paw into that pot and pulled out a prompt. Well, no matter. The reach was made and the damage done. And I do mean damage. I pulled what I was certain was the worst song prompt I had ever had the misfortune to read. It was specific, detailed, and sounded downright boring. All of the most loathsome possible qualities in an already completely deplorable thing. Did I mention that I'm not a big fan of prompts? Oh, I guess it would help if I tell you what it was. Lights all over the place. I know, right? Terrible. So I folded it over and shoved it as deeply into my pocket as my fist would allow. No such song would be written by me that weekend or any other. And it made the pocket only for lack of a handy waist bin. I then went along meeting, greeting, chatting, playing, singing, sleeping, a little. And as I went about the business and pleasure of the event, the greedy little songwriter inside was turning that line over in its gnarled little hands like it's precious. Every few hours, it would surface with some song suggestion growing out of lights all over the place, and I would quickly shoo it away as one does a yippy little dog that won't stop jumping. Then, somewhere in the ether of my sleep-deprived Saturday morning, this Midwestern gal had a vision. It was a meadow filled with fireflies, as though the clearest night sky had fallen to the earth. And then I remembered about a place in the Great Smoky Mountains where each summer, Synchronous fireflies light up the night in chorus. And that leap was the beginning of a song called Born to Shine. I've heard other songwriters say that song prompts aren't about the prompt. They're about the songwriter. That they just help unlock what's already in you. Sounded like a slick sales job to me. I haven't fallen for that sort of pitch since eat this slimy stewed spinach and you'll grow big and strong. Or better yet, come play the show for free. It'll be great exposure. Uh Uh-huh. But I guess this pitch stands up to reason. And I, fool that I am, think I might secretly, well, not so secretly now, like the sweat equity and leap required to write what feels like a relevant, meaningful song from a seemingly simple, literal, and mundane prompt. Give the average Midwesterner a chunk of wood and it might just end up in the wood stove on a February evening perfectly viable. Give an artist the same chunk of wood, and you might just come back to find a stool, a bowl, a tool, a toy, or a sculpture with no other purpose than adding beauty to the world in its place. I think an artist's job, and we are all artists after a fashion if we declare it, is to look beyond the obvious of things, to look closer and see what might be obscured, What beauty wants to come forth? What story wants to be told? What song wants to be written? It's okay. I stop fighting, and you can too. It's no use anyhow when you were born to shine. I'm Rachel Perry. I just wanted to tell you that this is a tall tale, so it's not a true story. It's called Caveat Emptor. The man brushed a few leaves out of his beard. Sleeping on a hammock in the woods has its disadvantages. He used a long pole to stir coals in the fire pit and blew a few twigs into a flame. Filling a charred metal pot with canteen water, he rummaged to find a few fresh eggs filched from the hen house at the ridge next door. Soon it would be fall in Brown County and winter wouldn't be as balmy as the Texas panhandle. 
As he waited for the water to boil, he heard a rumbling of a wagon rolling up the dry creek bed below. He stepped over to a lookout between two massive red oaks and saw the huckster with his bay gelding reluctantly pulling a loaded cart. The horse laid his ears back and wrung his tail when the huckster cracked his whip. Get along there, sonny, you lazy no-good son of a gun. The bearded man ran down the hill, ducking through branches. Hearing something crashing through the woods, the startled huckster barely turned his head when everything went black. He awoke with a splitting headache, lying on rocky ground next to his wagon. Groaning, he got up and found the wagon contents pillaged. But even more distressing, his horse was gone. Artist Theodore Clement Steele borrowed his neighbor's horse and wagon to get from his construction project near Belmont to the weekly sale on the west side of Bloomington. Finding a good driving horse was a necessity before his bride arrived from Indianapolis. His new hilltop home was a half-day's wagon ride to Bloomington or Nashville over notoriously bad roads. Although he'd driven a plow team as a farm boy, 60-year-old Steele was not fond of horses, and he knew he was no expert. He didn't want to delay construction by bringing along the carpenter, Mr. Quick, who surely would have been a savior or savvier about horseflesh. Steele's wagon rumbled into the sale barn lot where he could hear the loud, rapid chant of the auctioneer. A rich mix of tobacco smoke and stable manure wafted out the open doors. He tied the raw-boned mare at the end of a long line of wagons in various sizes and states of repair and walked behind the barn where penned animals awaited their fate. Horses, ponies, mules, and donkeys of all colors and ages milled around. Some stood in small groups, swishing their tails at the flies. A few were nervously pacing, showing sweaty necks and white-rimmed eyes, while others dozed near the fence railing. Steele spied a medium-sized bay with a calm eye and moved closer to look at the animal's legs. No obvious bows or splints. His hooves could use a farrier, but the horse appeared to be sound. Steele entered the barn and took a numbered placard. He climbed the rough board bleachers surrounding a small auction ring where the horses were brought in. Sometimes a teenage boy rode them in, steering only with a halter and lead rope whooping and kicking them into responsiveness. Steele glanced around the crowd. All men, mostly farmers, he guessed. Faded overalls and heavy boots prevailed. He felt out of place in his string tie and white shirt and wondered who would be bidding against him. They finally brought in the bay gelding mid-afternoon. The kid easily maneuvered him, riding bareback. Alert but not terrified, the horse took in the surrounding bleachers, men along the fences, and tobacco smell as he walked clockwise around the circular pen. All right, gentlemen, the auctioneer began. We got a 13-year-old looker with no pesky white feet. An easy keeper. Broke to pull a ride. He's been around the block and won't shy on you. Let's start out at 150. 150, 150, looking for 150. What do you want to get for him? Steele hesitated. This seemed like a high price compared to the previous animals. Everyone else seemed to agree. All right, 100. Let's start at 100. 100. How many dollars there? Now 100. Steele raised his placard to the hey of one of the assistants watching the stands. 100 bidder, now 110. 100 bidder, now 110. A man seated behind Steele raised his hand. 110 now, 125. 125, what do you want to get? 125, looking for 125. Steele twisted around to look at his competition. The guy looked pretty rough. 
ruddy face and long beard flecked with gray. Wondering how badly he wanted the gelding, Steele raised his placard. The auctioneer's voice raised in pitch with each increase. 125, bidder. Now 125. You're really making me work for this one. 125 now. 125. All right. What do you want to get? 125. Yes. 125 now. 150. 150. I could have saved a lot of time here, folks. 150. All right. Let's give 150. Reluctant to go home empty-handed, Steele raised his placard once again. 150. Now 150. I got 150. Don't let him get away. He's a pretty one. 160. 160. Looking for 160. Sold number 24 for $150. Feeling the mixture of triumph and regret, Steele found his way down the bleachers as the kid led the bay horse outside. After paying the bookkeeper, he exchanged his own halter for the rope one and led the animal to his wagon to tie him on behind. A little wayward bug was raised up by mosquitoes From a puddle underneath the Brooklyn Bridge He was orphaned by a windshield in Manhattan So they took him under wing like their own bitch And they did their best to bring him up a sucker But he never shared the thirst his daddy did Even worse, he had a glow that made him different Bullied by the other Skeeter kids Well, he had a light that came from deep inside him He was slowly learning to deny But his little soul kept glowing just to spite him There's no use to fight your measure of divine You around Dumbo And in the evenings he would fly down to the park But he couldn't stay too late to watch the barges He drew too much attention after dark Till one day he was pulled in through the window Of a station wagon headed out of town A little family off to take a June vacation Playing license plate and rolling southern bound Well he had a light that came from deep inside him He had slowly learned to deny But his little soul kept glowing just to spite him There's no use to fight your measure of divine like heaven at least the heaven living in his mind they pulled into a campground down in Elkmont and pitched a tent to turn in for the night 
While the last thing on his little mind was sleeping The air was clean and smelled of earth and wood He was weary, he was wired from the journey And a little midnight flight might do him good When he opened up his eyes, tears rolled down his face. There were lights all over the place. And now the light that came from deep inside him, he no longer needed to deny. And his little soul was lit up like a No, there's no use to fight your measure of divine You, yes, you born to shine A few weeks later, as far as T.C. Steele was concerned, everything was peachy. His new bride, Selma, had arrived with him from Indianapolis by train through Gosport and Bloomington, and she was busily unpacking crates to bring a woman's touch to the House of the Singing Winds. After a half day of unpacking, they decided to make a run for supplies. Selma herself documented their first venture to the Belmont store only a few miles down the hill on the curved and rutted clay road. We drove leisurely, she wrote, for there are so many interesting, paintable subjects all along the way. As we approached the country store at Belmont, I became very conscious as a foreigner of the groups lounging about, and I found it difficult to meet their stares with friendliness. We found a hitching rack for the horse and went into the store. I was introduced to the storekeeper, an awkward occasion for us both. To make immediate conversation, I informed him that we had brought the wagon instead of the surrey because there were so many things I needed to buy. I took out my list and began. I'll take a pound of fresh butter. The answer came, well, I do not sell butter. Everybody here makes his own. Well, could I buy some from one of the farms in the neighborhood, I asked. Yes, he said, Mrs. Kreitz is a good butter maker. After being told where she lived, I scratched that item off my list number two on the list. Well, let me have a loaf of bread. I don't sell bread. Everybody here makes his own. Number two checked off. Number three on the list. Well, eggs. Do you sell eggs? Sorry, ma'am. The huckster ain't been around since his horse was stolen. Number four on the list. Well, then meat. Surely you keep meat. To my surprise, he said yes. May I see it? I was taken into a rear room where it was kept. What I was shown was fat side meat, pickled in a barrel of brine. Oh, no, I said in disgust. I cannot eat such fat meat. In reply, hesitatingly, he said, Everybody out here likes it. It'd be pretty good eating for you both, being as thin as you are. The shopkeeper called my attention to the various staple foods which he had on hand, but these were all exposed in open barrels and boxes, and I could not bring myself to buy any of them. 
T.C. Steele and Selma came out of the store with only a few crocks and baskets, sorry to have done nothing to ease the tension between themselves and their new neighbors. Three of the lounging men were standing near their horse and wagon, watching one fellow examine the horse's open mouth. The man, wearing a straw hat and walrus mustache, wiped his fingers on his overalls and nodded to his companions. Yep, that's sunny, all right. The men all looked at Steele. This here horse belongs to Donnie the Huckster. The man spit a long brown jet of tobacco juice on the ground. Surprised and flustered, Steele peered at the man through his wire-rimmed spectacles. Well, well, that just can't be, he muttered. I bought this horse fair and square at the Bloomington sale barn. A few days later, Selma saw a man riding his mule up the long driveway to the House of the Singing Winds. He swayed to one side as the mule ambled toward the house. Selma tucked stray wisps of hair into her bun and hurried out, wiping her hands on her apron. The painter's gone out with his art supplies. I'm afraid he's not here. The man shakily dismounted and carefully laid his rifle across the cavalry saddle. His black fedora and wrinkled wool jacket looked like they'd seen better days. I ain't here to cause trouble, he drawled, but I'm Sam Park, sheriff of this here county, and I heard from the boys that you all have Donnie's horse that went missing. Uh, we know nothing about that, Selma declared. The painter bought that horse at an auction in Bloomington a few weeks ago. Sam looked at Selma without smiling. His red nose hinted at his fondness for whiskey. Well, that there horse got stole from Donnie. You got to give him up or I'll have to take your man down to the log jail in town. Horse rustling's a hanging offense round here. The sheriff sauntered over to a filigreed metal bench near the pergola, letting his mule snuffle around in newly turned earth. He squinted down the denuded hill toward a ravine and searched in his jacket for a plug of tobacco. I don't guess you got something to wet my whistle after a long ride. Selma stared at Sam in disbelief. It was going to be a long wait. T.C. Steele came puffing up the hill around midday, carrying his easel, palette, and a small canvas. It had been a good morning. His wet painting captured filtered light reflections in the ravine creek, a good start on a brown county landscape. As he approached the house, he saw a rough-looking man with a mule and immediately thought of Selma. Perhaps it wasn't a great idea to leave her here by herself. He, he laid his art supplies on the house steps and walked toward the man. Uh, hello, sir. Can I help you? Before Sheriff Parks could rearrange the tobacco plug in his cheek, Selma rushed out of the house looking worried. This is Sam Parks. He says that the horse he bought is stolen. Sam nodded. Yep, just give him back and I'll leave in amity. But we need that horse, Steele said, searching his mind for some equitable way to solve the dilemma. Donnie needs him too. He can't do business with no horse to get around. Steele suddenly had a thought. It was a long shot, but worth a try. Do you know that I paint pictures to make a living? Come in the house and let me show you what I do. Sam left his mule in the garden patch and reluctantly clumped into the house following the artist. There, among the fancy maroon velvet chairs and oriental rugs, stacked against the walls surrounding a fireplace, were pictures of the Brown County he knew so well. Panoramic vistas from the hilltop home, views of the winding Belmont Road, interior forest scenes, and morning sunrises with hazy blue hills in the background. Sam's mouth hung open. He'd never seen anything like them. When I take these paintings to the city, I get about 200 apiece for them. 
Do you think the huckster would take one of these and trade for his horse? Sam looked dubious but shrugged. Well, I can give it a try. T.C. Steele and Selma watched with relief as Sam's mule trundled down the long driveway with his rider balancing a 24 by 30 canvas. Almost 90 years later, Donnie's grandson sold that T.C. Steele painting for close to $25,000, and a few years after that, a scandal commenced over several forged T.C. Steele paintings sold in an Indianapolis gallery. The moral of the story? Always check the provenance of paintings and horses before you buy them. Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on volunteer-powered community radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at wfhb.org. Segment two begins with our conversation about folk arts and creative aging with John Kay. Dave Simcox will share some information about the Friends of Lake Monroe meeting hosted by the Brown County League of Women Voters. And we'll close with Chris Dollar's song, Wishing Well. This is Pam Rader with the Brown County Hour, broadcasting from the Historical Center in downtown Nashville. And I'm here with Dave Seastrom, but also we have John Kay as a guest. And John Kay is renowned as a wonderful dulcimer player, but he's also the head of uh, folk arts with IU. And that's kind of morphed into a creative aging project so i'll let john tell it from here so john why don't you share a little of your bio to get started okay uh, i actually grew up here in brown county went to nashville elementary school ended up going to brown county junior high and high school and growing up here i was always surrounded by uh, older artists creatives uh, around there and that's what got me interested in traditional music traditional crafts and that sort of thing what is your actual title with. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a clinical associate professor in the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at Indiana University, uh, where I also direct a program called Traditional Arts Indiana. It's a statewide folk arts program. There are programs like it all over the United States. I've been there, this marks my 15th year as the director of Traditional Arts Indiana, and we exist to identify, document, and promote the folk and traditional arts of the state. So we do everything from old-time fiddling to uh, ballet folklorico to immigrant uh, egg decorating traditions to all types of traditional arts that are, that are both homegrown here in Indiana, but also are the traditions that people bring with them from other places. I do uh, public programs all over Indiana. Uh, we've done things from up near Chicago all the way down to Evansville. We're all over the state. And so I make a point of coming to my, my home county here and doing some, some programs. Uh, some of the programs that we do uh, are we have a traveling exhibit program that tours 30 traveling exhibits to libraries all, all around the state. 
Now, earlier you mentioned you just got back from China and you were studying some folk art there. I've spent my whole professional life, uh, and even before that, uh, learning about the traditional arts of Indiana, you know, studying uh, traditional crafts uh, all over the state. And I've done a lot of work doing documentary, uh, making documentary shorts about traditional crafts. Well, the American Folklore Society and the China Folklore Society uh, came up with this idea to do a partnership to bring scholars together, to learn from each other. And so I went to China to do uh, present in a conference uh, about traditional arts in both countries and to partner with museums and universities. And uh, the first time we went to uh, Nandan County in uh, Guangxi province in southwest uh, China, uh, this time we went to uh, the Yunnan province uh, in the little town of uh, uh, Dali. We work with uh, a 76-year-old basket maker a, a textile artist, an indigo dyer, a silversmith, a wood carver. And we, we would go, and through a translator, we would do interviews with these artists, and we would learn about the, uh, uh, the traditional crafts there. And that's through my work at the Mathers Museum, where I'm also a curator of folk life and cultural heritage. So in these short films, they're actually demonstrating their craft. Right? Yeah, the, usually it's uh, 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 demonstrating, recording the creative process. One of the interesting things that we did was with a 76-year-old basket maker. Uh, he is, uh, is an inheritor. He's the person who this tradition has been passed on to. But four generations of his family continues this craft. Oh. Uh, and so he's there weaving. His uh, daughter-in-law is there uh, starting a basket on, on the base. And then you see him weave a little bit on it. And his granddaughter's working on a basket. Then his son comes to tie the, the, the band around the edge and to do the handles on it. So each one of them has a, a technique that they do. In addition to the interview, I sit down and I record each step in the process. Uh, I'm finishing up a documentary that'll air at the American Folklore Society meeting this year in Baltimore. It's on the a rice basket maker. It's a bamboo style of basket that's made in, uh, in Nandan County uh, by the Baiku Yao people, where he used to make lots and lots of baskets. Now he just specializes in this one style of basket that's a double woven wall construction, really beautiful, distinctive craft. And it took him two full days to make the basket that uh, I recorded in that and, and featured in the documentary. Did you come home with any of those baskets? The museum did. Yeah. Uh, the museum has uh, the basket that we shot the video of. It's in our collection. And that's really one of the main points of doing it. Uh, it's not necessarily to, although we'll, we'll make films that we make available to the public, but it becomes a way of recording important traditional knowledge, and then we get this object that's richly documented around it. And so that's... Uh, that's the focus. So what is the attachment with the creative aging in folk arts? Uh, I, I've been working as a folklorist uh, for almost 30 years now. And I've always gone to the oldest generation to record their stories and to learn about traditional music and to learn about traditional crafts. Uh, and it never occurred to me to think about their age necessarily. I was thinking so much about heritage and tradition and about technique and creative process and community. Uh, and then several years ago, uh, I started working with some artists and I started really thinking about what it meant to them to be able to do these traditional crafts and how that supported them. One of the issues that older adults in the United States are, are facing, and I would argue in other places as well around, around the world, are the three plagues, this idea of people being 
they're alone, they experience loneliness, uh, they're isolated uh, at times, they uh, feel bored, they don't have anything to do, and that uh, creates a feelings of helplessness. So boredom, isolation, and helplessness become these kind of three plagues. But when you meet someone who has music to play or crafts to do or food to make for people, uh, those type of traditional arts become a resource for them to help them as they get older. And so uh, I wrote a book called Folk Art and Aging that Indiana University Press published uh, in 2016. And since then, I've been doing creative aging projects and programs looking at traditional arts help older adults. Uh, And I've done talks from all over uh, the United States uh, with senior housing and senior centers and folk arts programs. And so that's been really great. In fact, I just, a couple months ago, I returned from the Library of Congress, uh, where I was asked to give a talk on traditional arts and resilience in later life that I gave. Well, you were the first person I heard say that uh, Nashville or Brown County is a NORC community, a natural occurring retirement community, and that you, your philosophy was we should embrace this. The United States and the world are facing major demographic changes right now. For the first time in human history, we're going to have more people over the age of 65 than under the age of 18. I have no idea. For the first time. That means we need to kind of wake up and look at The world is getting older. There are these serious problems that are facing it. But having said that, as I go around Brown County, people are doing radio shows. Uh, People are doing uh, uh, wonderful music at church. They're doing music uh, on Tuesday nights downtown. There's wonderful arts that people are being involved with that, that they're able to do here that becomes difficult for them other places because there's not this naturally occurring retirement community. So I believe that it would be really beneficial if we could kind of lean into that and really look at the things that Brown County can do to improve the quality of life for older adults and how we can make this a place where people can age in place and have a good life here. So, John, do you have a website or some way we can contact you to see what the work you're doing and get more information about future shows? Uh, Definitely. We're based at Indiana University, so you can uh, go there and just Google Traditional Arts Indiana or you can uh, you can go type in traditionalarts.indiana.edu. Excellent. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming in. Well, it's my pleasure to introduce Dave Simcox, who is a Monroe County resident, a founding member of the Friends of Lake Monroe, part of the Natural Resources Committee for the uh, State and Local League of Women Voters, And he's here tonight to talk about Lake Monroe. Hi, Dave. Thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'd like to talk about a great opportunity for folks that are interested in Lake Monroe. We're having a community forum on Lake Monroe on January the 14th. Uh, That's a Tuesday evening, and it's going to be at the Brown County Public Library downstairs and starts at 645 and runs through 830 sharp. And this is organized by the League of Women Voters and the Friends of Lake Monroe. Well, so what is the uh, purpose of this forum? What's going to be discussed? The last time there was a comprehensive study on Lake Monroe was in 1997. It was published. Since that time, nothing in an organized way has been done. Uh, Dr. Sherry Mitchell Brooker, she organized the Friends of Lake Monroe in 2016, the fall, 
last year, the Friends Group applied for a grant for a watershed management plan. And this plan's goal is to develop a locally driven, scientifically based plan to sustain this vital resource. Well, what percentage of the watershed falls in Brown County? Well, good question there, Dave. 56%. Right. How about that? And so the largest area of the watershed's 415 square miles is in Brown County. The next is Monroe at 24, and I think Jackson's 20, and then a small percentage in, in Bartholomew and in Lawrence County. 82% is forested, 8% is agriculture. So the forests play a vital role in filtering and keeping this lake sustainable. 42% in public lands between DNR and Hoosier National. 42% and the remainder is in private lands of that 415 square miles. The complexity comes by the fact that there are many agencies and governmental bodies are involved in, and have a stake in this. And, and I think that's the reason why Friends was awarded this grant was because they are a kind of a neutral arbiter and you know, very driven towards the sustainability of the lake. This gives you the opportunity to form an overarching plan that connects all the dots between the different agencies and entities. That's correct. All right. And that's what we hope to come out of this two-year study is identifying the priorities because everybody's got an idea of what's wrong or what needs to be fixed, but there's only so much can be done. So part of this process is to identify the real threats, the contamination threats, and which ones can be solved. And can a plan be put together around this that would make a difference for the lake? So that's the real goal here is to provide that for the governmental bodies and agencies that are involved. Currently, what is the water quality of the lake? Well, it's not so good in that it's rated as impaired by EPA for algae and mercury. Some of the creeks in the area have E. coli levels that are listed in the EPA list. Last seven years, there's been recreational advisories due to algae contamination in the lake um, issued by item. So we know that there is a buildup of nutrients that's feeding the algae, warmer temperatures, things like that. And we know that the lake is likely phosphate limited, meaning that if phosphates come in from whatever source, whether it be lawn fertilizer, agriculture, or just sediment, that they can create a rich environment for organic growth, plants and algae, which then break down and then you get a higher level of organics in there that starves the lake of oxygen. And that eutrophication is then the problem. So that's part of the quest here is to identify which are the big problems because we've got 120,000 plus people that drink that water as a sole source. Now, I was just going to mention that. I mean, this is the only water source for all of Bloomington and much of the surrounding area, yes. including portions of Brown County. That's correct. And we also know that from an economic standpoint, the tourism is important to the entire region, from boating to fishing to bird watching to kayaking. Yep. Um, there's just a lot of economy that's driven by people visiting and using it in this watershed. So it's obvious that Lake Monroe is central to the region. It's a critically important body of water. And you guys, for the first time, have stepped up and have or creating an entity that will oversee all of the operations and have strong input in maintaining the quality and vitality of this lake. You could think of it as a facilitator role. Facilitator. You know, we're not going to be telling so-and-so they got to do this or that, but when you bring everybody to the table with a set of good science, it becomes pretty obvious what you ought to be working on and where you can make a difference. So tell us about this meeting again. Tell us when and where. 
It's a public input session at the Brown County Public Library downstairs. January, Tuesday, the 14th, 10th. is that correct? Yeah, and starts at 6.45 and runs through 8.30 sharp. Dave, thank you so much for coming in and sharing this information, and thank you and all of your cohorts for all of the work you're doing on public's behalf. Pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. This one's called Wishing Well, and it's about how throwing your money in a wishing well is not going to do anything. It's uh, wishful thinking. It might get you moving, but you got to move. <laughs> wishing well, wishing well, wishing you take the stream for two. Wishing well, wishing well, wishing you take my coin and my troubles too. Come upon a wishing well, waiting on a tail. Just wandering, a wishing the way it's alive to get them off of my chest. It's not so simple to solve. You strive to yourself, it's just a lie. But tough times at the end of your road, but at least it's worth a try. Wishing well, wishing well, wishing you take the stream for two. Wishing well, wishing well, wishing you take my coin and my troubles too. With the luckiest man I ever saw, haven't seen him since. Was a poor man looking for a life away to another life a glimpse. He slipped and fell into the well, and he threw in all his change. And now he's showered with money every day and got water free to range. Wishing well, wishing well, wishing you'd take the stream for two. Wishing well, wishing well, wishing you'd take my coin and my troubles too. It ain't got nothing funny, no magic spell Just lower that bucket and drink your fill Yeah, you best stop a dreamin' by your windowsill Oh, you best stop a dreamin' by your windowsill Well, I wish we'll go as far as you want to let it roll But simply waiting for life to grow by paying a small toll Won't change a dang thing unless you choose a roll Pull out your mind and collect them in your soul Like a wishing well, wishing well Wishing you take the stream for two Wishing well, wishing well Wishing you take my coin and my troubles too Well, wishing well Wishing you take the stream for two Wishing well, wishing well Wishing you take my coin You take my coin and my troubles too Take my coin and my troubles too Now we pause for station identification. You are listening to the Brown County Hour on Volunteer Powered Community Radio, WFHB, at 100.7 in Brown County, 91.3 and 98.1 in Bloomington, 106.3 at Ellettsville, and online at WFHB.org. Our final segment begins with Jim Eagleman's thoughts about fall work. Dave Seastrom has a few things to say about being a responsible co-inhabitant with all the critters we share the forest with. And we'll close the show with Jamie Hood and John Boyer, also known as The Hammer and the Hatchet, performing their song, Bailey's Small Engine Repair.
Support for the Brown County Hour comes from listeners like you and the support of the Brown County Inn, a family-friendly getaway destination located in Nashville, Indiana, offering locally sourced food, drinks, and live entertainment with banquet space, indoor-outdoor pool, miniature golf, and more. Information and booking available at browncountyinn.com. Have you recovered yet? Are you completely exhausted? Did all the work preparing the Thanksgiving meal wear you out only to see that giant feast get devoured in minutes? Did Black Friday, followed by Small Business Saturday, followed by Football Sunday, followed by Cyber Monday, leave you disillusioned and in shock, overstimulated from the online discount sales and special offers, maybe left you overdrawn? Brace yourself. We've only started the holiday marathon, Thanksgiving celebration down, two holidays to go. If there's any calm after the storm, then a brief settling before the next one, I'm speaking metaphorically, you can always turn your tired eyes away from the screen and the pots and pans and focus on nature. That always does it for me, and I can attest from research done on its many relaxing virtues, it'll probably do some good for you too. Somehow working outside for me as we experience colder weather now is a great satisfier. I put on more clothing than I really need, and within a half hour I'm shedding that extra jacket or sweater. My gloves have started to feel wet from sweating, and a stocking cap is soon discarded. The sights, sounds, and smells I experience outside are what I really enjoy, and the work too, but I purposely put off any big jobs I could have tackled in the summer till now. I can work better with cold around me than I can with the high heat and humidity of a Brown County summer. A master gardener class I took years ago reminds me now is the time to prune and trim any shrubs and trees. It's also a good time now that dormancy has set in to transplant any woody plant you want to relocate. Late fall and early spring is a gardener's time to replant, relocate, and reorganize any bed plot, or space. I find if we tie a ribbon or a brightly colored string around a shrub we want to bring closer to the house when the leaves are on, it's easier to locate than when the leaves are gone. I search and identify native shrubs in our woods like highbush cranberry, arrowwood, wild hydrangea, and spicebush to plant as an understory near the bird feeders. The fruit and seeds from these native shrubs and others are soon stripped each fall as birds come regularly to them and to the feeder, and I start the winter feeding of birds after late fall when the summer nesters have left and the year-round residents like cardinals, jays, titmice, juncos, and chickadees come in. Their calling all day is a background chorus I like to hear. And the leaves? What do I do with all the leaves? I've talked here before on Nature Ramblings about the sheer business of leaf management, as it's called. Now with the pollination story and its mission in full stride, we understand fallen leaves are best left where they accumulate. Chrysalises, cocoons, and insect egg cases are left undisturbed in the leaves and branches that fall. The insects can continue with their life cycles and produce the moths and butterflies we hope to see next summer. A simple act of a different kind of yard management, not neglect, as we're quick to say, is beneficial to the nature around us. Burning, bagging extra leaves and shipping them off to the landfill, even mulching now with a mower, interrupts this natural cycle. 
And this regard for nature is less work for us. Fall leaf raking is a job I'd gladly remove from the list. One of the sounds I listen for at this time of year is that of the sandhill cranes. While I've studied these birds for my programs at the park and read all I can about their migration, their feeding and behavior, and I even helped a grad student years ago tag and monitor their daily movements, I still find something magical when their trumpeting is distantly heard each fall. Way high overhead, their long Vs can be detected once you follow and pinpoint the sound. There have been many times I've watched their circling overhead, loud calling and what appears to be a mass confusion as to which way to continue. Have you seen this? While other flocks proceed more determinedly, sometimes north, sometimes south, a large clattering and calling can be heard. I'm close enough, luckily I can watch this for a few minutes. Then as if the vote came back in the affirmative, off they fly in long single files, the soft murmuring call that's reassuring all stragglers the right decision was made. The smell of seasoned oak from the chimney lets me know I have a warm house to return to when the work's done. Happy to have put up several ricks of oak and hickory months and even years ago, it's covered now with a new roof on the woodshed. It had plenty of air and sun to dry and season it, and I'm ready for whatever winter weather comes our way. Split and stacked, I bring in a few loads every week, and scrap wood left over from a recent construction job has provided plenty of kindling. Like you, I look forward to a Brown County winter. Hmm, is that the right way to say it? With snow and ice to cover our Brown County hills and ravines all in white. Sure, driving will be challenging, trips to town combined to minimize times out. But we all do it. Prepare for it. Take it in stride and consider whatever mishaps and inconveniences occur. It's a small price for the great adventure of living here. Jim Eagleman for Nature Ramblings. WFHB-FM, the Brown County Hour. Thanks for listening. Those of us who have the privilege to live in Brown County share our lives with nature. Up here on the ridge, we see deer almost every day, and wild turkeys run through the yard often with their little ones in tow. During the warmer months, we see our neighbors, the rattlesnakes, and the forest is full of birds that find their homes here or are returning from their migration to the south. These beings and many others are our neighbors. We share our lives with them, and because we are the intruders, we have an obligation to stay out of their way and to protect them if we can. Some folks may not consider critters like the rattlesnakes to be good neighbors. But like all living beings, they have their own place in nature, and they really are quite passive and will always flee if given half a chance. Another group of critters that are often seen in a bad light are the bats. These little guys mind their own business, so the only time we see them is at dusk when they fly from their roosts to hunt insects and nectar. These thrifty creatures consume one-third of their body weight each evening during the warm season, and one of their favorite foods is mosquitoes. There's a prevailing mythology that bats get tangled in your hair, or even worse, that they are vampires. First, a bat will do anything it can to avoid you, so it's unlikely one will end up in your hair. It's true that there are vampire bats in South America, but they don't have a preference for human blood, and we'll never see one in Brown County. Bats do carry rabies, but it's rare, and it's easy to tell if a bat is infected because they don't act right. 
Here at the ranch, we appreciate the bats, and we're glad that they're out there eating the insects that really will suck our blood. They have several roosts scattered around our place, and we do our best to give them all the space they need. The sad truth is occasionally, inadvertent human contact results in a bad outcome for wildlife. And I want to share a story about just such an occurrence. It's almost winter, and the bats are hibernating in their roosts. They choose a variety of places to call home. This can include hollow trees, caves, or the eaves of a house. The other morning, I opened the sliding barn door on my shop, and much to my horror, five big brown bats fell to the ground at my feet. It was cold, and they lay motionless on the ground. I was concerned for their well-being and scooped them up and brought them into the heated shop. One unfortunate bat tangled with the wheel on the door track and was severely injured. The four bats woke up and found places to roost in the shop, but the injured bat needed help, and I didn't know what to do. When I called our veterinarian, they suggested that I call Wild Care in Bloomington. The folks at Wild Care were very informative, and they offered to look at the injured bat. I had plenty of other things to do that day, but I was responsible for his injury, and I felt sorry for the little creature, so I decided to take him in. In order to transport him safely, I found a small cardboard box, lined it with a cotton rag, and placed him inside. His will to live was strong, and I thought he had a chance to make it. I checked on him periodically as we drove to town, and he continued to hang on. Sadly, when they evaluated him, his injuries were too severe, and they decided to euthanize him. The attendant could tell that I was upset, and he assured me that the gas they use puts the animals instantly to sleep and that it would end his suffering. I'm sharing this story because I like to think I'm a good steward of the land, and I respect all the living beings we share the forest with. Sadly, the bat and I did nothing wrong. He was only seeking shelter from the winter, and I was simply opening the door to the shop. His demise was the result of living too close to humans. Wild critters need a place to live, just as we do, and it's heartbreaking when the interaction causes harm. It's a powerful reminder for me to try to be a considerate neighbor and to slow down and always look out for the animals we share our lives with here in the wilds of southern Indiana. This is Dave Seastrom. See you next time. This one's called uh, Bailey Small Engine Repair. Uh, <laughs> it's our unofficial sponsor song. We're holding on to it for when we need a favor. Uh, we maybe go into the uh, business of writing jingles after this one. People do like this song, so we'll see what you think. If our mower breaks, we got, we got an ace in the hole. Maybe we can get it fixed. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> All right, you ready? Got a bad starter's need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small Engine Repair. Just got a flat, one, don't matter. It's a hard time to change a pattern. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small Engine Repair. Say, so got a cast iron core and old brick strutting. Bank of power's just a little like, but you couldn't put them down if you shot them with a 44. He sells guns, knives, bait and tackle, candy, cigarettes, and tobacco. All the things you only want when you really need them. Well, you got a bad starter's need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's Small Engine Repair.
Just gotta flap and don't matter. It's a hard times have change about him. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Well, he'll fix up your tiller. He even puts, puts up with old man Miller. Likes to talk about the olden days while he kicks the dirt off of your tines. He'll just that carb on your weed whacker. Says his grandson's a slacker. Keeps him fetching, 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 fetching tools until he gets it right. Well, you got a bad start. Just need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Just got a flap, but don't matter. Hard times will change a pattern Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair Well down the road some dogs are barking and the day is growing dark Gotta get to my bed and dreams in my head so I can make it an early start It's a hard turn of the ratchet day in the life of the hammer and the hatchet Got her hands full of splinters cause we're pining and certified well, you got a bad starters need a cool drink of water. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Just got a flat, what don't matter. It's a hard time to change a pattern. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's small engine repair. Bring your tractor on down to Bailey's guns, knives, bait and tackle, candy, cigarettes, and tobacco. We need a line for your upright base, fresh, we sharp, and lawnmower blades. Got an old beat up wooden canoe, spark plugs, new and used. 22 long rifle shells, a bunch of stuff in the weeds that ain't for sale. Malabars, bows and arrows, chainsaws, and one rusty wheelbarrow. DVDs and VHS, Charlie Bailey. He's the best, just be kind of Thanks for tuning in to episode 94 of the Brown County Hour, recorded at our studio in the History Center here in downtown Nashville, and brought to you the first Sunday of every month at 9 a.m. and the following Wednesday at 6 p.m. and anytime online. Be sure to look for us on iTunes and Stitcher. The Brown County Hour is brought to you by a diverse group of folks who believe now more than ever, the world is for everyone. The Brown County Hour crew wishes each and every one a Happy New Year! This show was produced by Chuck Wills, Pam Rader, Rick Fettig, Vera Grubbs, Jim Lemon, and Dave Seastrom. We would also like to thank Slats Klug for our theme music. You have been listening to the Brown County Hour. Coming to you from deep in the woods of Brown County, Indiana. Celebrating the arts, culture, and nature that make this such a unique community. Visit us online at browncountyhour.com. The Brown County Hour is a production of WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported community radio for South Central Indiana. Take me back, back to my home, Brown County. Oh